I'm Dan Carell, CEO of the Digital Commerce Alliance, and this is Commerce Code, a weekly digital commerce podcast for leaders in card linking, loyalty and digital marketing, mobile wallets and payments, and financial data. Thanks for joining this running conversation with leaders in the industry. And if this podcast is helpful to you, come join us at the Digital Commerce Alliance. You can learn more at www.digcomall.org. This week, Dan is talking with Paul Siegfried from TransUnion. TransUnion's database maintains 500 million business and client credit histories worldwide, provided by more than 85,000 credit-granting institutions. This gives Paul incredible visibility into the most recent data on economic activity. Today, Dan will be talking with Paul about consumer behavior in the current environment and the outlook for the holiday season. Before we get to that interview, we'll dig into a few issues in digital commerce these days. First, is business travel about to stall? Or will business travelers be on the road and in the air more and more across the coming year? Second, what will Europeans trade away this winter in order to pay for heat? All that's ahead, and of course, the main event, consumers, inflation, and the holidays, a conversation with Paul Siegfried of TransUnion. Commerce Code is brought to you in part by Vantage Score. Nine of the top 10 banks and over 3,000 leading banks and fintechs use Vantage Score to predict and manage repayment risk. Learn more about the latest advances in credit scoring and how to grow your lending business by leveraging financial inclusion at VantageScore.com. Is business travel about to stall? After virtually disappearing in early 2020, business travelers are again booking trips to meetings, conferences, and events. Global business travel was a $1.4 trillion industry in 2019, but conflicting factors have experts guessing at how long it will take for business travel to return to that level. Currently, the Global Business Travel Association projects business travel spending of just over $900 billion in 2022, $500 billion less than in 2019. But that spending is, of course, much more than in 2021 and 2020, so it's on the rise. Companies want to put employees, and especially their sales teams, back on the road. But inflation and a possible recession have led major firms like Google and Microsoft to announce sweeping travel restrictions in an effort to cut costs and protect earnings. But not all companies are taking the cost-cutting path. Aviation data company ARC reports that business travel is already at about 70% of where it was in 2019 and continues to climb, which leads to some questions for executives in digital commerce whose businesses are affected by business travel spending levels. Here are a few we've been hearing from DCA members lately. If some companies are reducing their travel budgets, how can we appeal to the companies that are keeping their travel budgets strong? If a company's travel is limited to business-critical trips, what does that mean for the kind of travel spending we will and won't see? Will conferences be included? What about long-distance flights? Will they be hurt more than domestic flights? Or are they more likely to be considered critical? Will virtual teams spend money to gather in person? And what will those expenditures look like? How can payments providers, travel companies, and retailers provide incentives to capture that new category, flying to the office? The Eurozone reported 10% inflation recently, and as winter rolls and energy costs become more meaningful, 
Europeans may face very practical budgetary constraints. For many families across Europe, the choice will be between how much to heat the house and how to spend what's left over after paying that heating bill. Governments in Europe have implemented a variety of schemes to limit the pain, but everyone agrees that the average European family will be paying more, and in some cases, several multiples more for heat this winter. In the retail and payments industry, the question is, what trade-offs will consumers make to balance the budget? Will restaurants take the brunt of it as consumers stay home for dinner? Will holiday shopping be cut back considerably? Will durables consumption be delayed? It is to be expected that durables consumption will drop for most categories of consumers. And this makes sense, particularly because the purchase of durables, appliances and the like, rose sharply across the last two years. But consumer reaction is also a matter of culture, not just cash. As Dan and Paul will discuss in this interview today, there's a lot that can't be known in advance. But there are also answers that may be different from one region to the next. Let's turn to Dan's conversation with Paul Siegfried of TransUnion, where they chew over some of what TransUnion knows about the current economy and how consumers are likely to respond. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on Commerce Code. Where are you joining us from? Well, hey, Dan. Thanks for bringing me on. I'm actually in Chicago today. Great. Well, as it turns out, I am too, but I think we're on opposite ends of the metro. So here we are on Zoom recording our podcast. Well, look, it's great to have you back on Commerce Code. Connoisseurs of this podcast will remember vividly, I'm sure, that you were on, I think it was episode 30. So it's been a while and a lot of stuff has changed. But before we dive into all of that stuff, Paul, I'd love it if you could just kind of remind our audience what your role is there at TransUnion and what kind of vantage point that gives you for looking at the consumer economy. So my role at TransUnion, I have the privilege of leading our card and banking business. With card and banking, we're looking at the market where we've got enterprise lenders at one end of the spectrum, and those are your your large national lenders. On the banking side of that spectrum are the 4,000 or so community lenders. And then we've got a group in between both of those segments. So card and banking represents those lenders. We do tend to have a very focus as well uh, on the card market itself. So we also have any of those lenders that might be monoline or card only lenders. So with that background, I went back and I listened to the episode you did with Silvio, which was back in October of 2020, not quite two years ago. Some things have changed. And in that episode, Silvio's first question to you was, how have low interest rates, high unemployment, and the recession impacted consumer credit usage in 2020? Okay, so that was the kickoff. So it's been a couple of years. Some stuff has changed. I am going to invert his question almost precisely and say, How have high interest rates, low unemployment, and an overheated economy impacted consumers and consumer credit usage uh, in 2022? I know it's a huge question, but I'd love to get your brief reflections on on all of that. Well, Dan, that is a huge question. In terms of interest rates, we've got much higher rates today in terms of mortgages, still some demand for housing, still some lower supply of housing than what we've seen over the history of time. But definitely we're seeing a slowdown for the consumer in the housing market, in the unsecured market, which would include credit cards as well as unsecured personal lending. Those rates have begun to rise. But overall, credit card tends to be less price sensitive than the other products. 
As far as employment picture, still have a situation where we really saw that employment rebound over the last two years. So we do have low unemployment, but we still are lagging a little bit in terms of labor participation. And overall, the impact to the economy is one where the consumer, for the most part on average, is still in a position of relative strength. But we've started to see weakness for consumers that are fixed income and lower income consumers due to specifically that rate of inflation. I was going to say that the elephant in the room kind of uh, is, is the inflation piece good news for consumers, as you said, the, the the employment situation. And so whatever we've seen with the economy, employment has stayed pretty strong, but labor participation rate is, is still not as high as maybe it could be. But on the inflation front, so for sure, fixed income consumers, okay, big impact there. Do you see other kinds of impact of inflation, maybe changes in behavior on, on certain fronts from consumers of, of just high inflation? Yeah, I think when you have high inflation, you have consumers that, because of of some level of uncertainty, begin to act in different ways. We just mentioned the fixed income, lower income consumer, where their basket of goods become more expensive. They're going to rely on borrowing to meet the short-term liquidity needs that they have. What does that mean? It means that they're going to seek those short-term loans, whether it's credit cards, unsecured personal lending. They need liquidity to bridge where they are today and where they expect to be in the future. We see that that basket of goods is more expensive. And so there are what we would call swapping down behaviors where consumers might have been used to buying a certain product, a certain brand, and they're going to swap down to more affordable brands. More so inflation, the one thing I would also call out, certainly if you look at the automotive market over the last two years, due to inventory restraints, you've seen dramatic inflation in the price of both new and used automobiles. And that's also created some impact upon consumers where they may not even be able to find something that's affordable for them. But if they do, certainly those payments have gone up. So again, the inflation impact on that consumer is that their bill that they have to pay is now more expensive for them, which again will impact their ability or their power power to spend on other goods. A month or more ago, we had on the show Tim Lee from Full Stack Economics, and he's an economist based in Washington, D.C., pays close attention to this kind of stuff. And he he mentioned something I honestly hadn't remembered or maybe ever known, which is after the 2009 recession, there was almost a, almost a full decade of reduced spending on consumer durables. And I think of that when you, you talk about sort of switching down and maybe um, substituting less expensive things, but there's also kind of a behavior of, you know, buying the washing machine, this kind of stuff when you have the availability, but we would maybe expect now to see a reduction in some of that stuff. I don't know if you can sort of see that from where you sit, Paul. As far as durables, it's not something that I've seen yet in terms of swap behavior. I think much of what we've seen the last year has been, again, supply chain constraining supply of all different types of goods. Mm. Uh, It is something that I would expect to see as we look towards the future, as some of those supply constraints start to even out, that we would see those types of considerations becoming available for consumers. Well, and and frankly, it's probably harder now to assess whether that's taking place because you do have supply chain constraints, right? And so, you know, if you're selling less in a certain category, there's at least currently a variety of different explanations for that. It's not just a reduction in demand. That's right, which makes it often very hard for us to understand the, the underlying drivers of some of these trends. 
want to end with a couple of things. One is a call for prognostication, which is holiday shopping. Then the other one is about affluent consumers. And so those are my two last things on holiday shopping. It's September as we're recording this. What do you think consumers are going to do differently this holiday shopping season? Well, that's always a tough one. And it's always tough to be a, that soothsayer. But you know, I think as we think about the, the state of the consumer today, this is a consumer that is cautious, has a job, but yet is cautious. And, and I think the one thing we've seen historically, when we see that from consumers, is a consumer that is very bargain or value oriented, that's looking for early sales, early deals. And I would fully expect the retailer community to fulfill that as well. So what I would expect to see is, I would expect to see early sales trying to ensure that they're capturing the share of the consumer wallet as soon as they can. I would expect to see that certainly well ahead of uh, the Thanksgiving holiday week. Right. Affluent consumers, you know, the story so far, I think of, I don't know if we want to call it the slowdown, but, you know, since the economy has become sort of concerning, interest rates rising, has been basically affluent consumers have continued to function as, you know, their regular programming, while, you know, middle income and lower income consumers have, have begun to respond. And I just wonder if you um, have seen a change in or expect a change in affluent consumers over the next few months, are they going to start to pull back and, and behave differently? I think the one thing to start off with over the last two years that we saw behavior, not necessarily a difference, but an, an acceleration where the affluent consumer really took a look at their wallet. And we've seen an awful lot of consumers acquiring new bank cards, evaluating their rewards program. And the way I would describe it would be there's never been a better time than now to be a consumer looking for the best bank card rewards program. The level of rewards are higher than they've ever been. The ability to be rewarded for your specific type of behavior has never been better than we've seen today. And so I think one, that has driven the affluent consumer to evaluate their rewards and their bank card over the last two years and, and really consider the type of cards that they've used. When you couldn't travel, certainly the near-term value of those travel cards decreased in consumers' minds and other cards may have increased. Certainly, we've started to see the return to travel domestically as well as now international travel. And so certainly expect to see the rebound in those types of cards to return. But I do think affluent consumers have, have now found there are very rewarding programs competing in their wallet at many different retailers or different classes of retail. That's really interesting insight on, on how people are shifting. And I, I will say it makes a ton of sense. The market is very competitive right now on the card front rewards and, and programs. And so it makes sense that people would be looking at that now. And I guess it puts just that much more of an emphasis on the people who are designing those programs to be able to target those things well and to think really hard about who they're trying to who they're trying to capture in the market. Paul, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation and we look forward to having you for further conversations on Commerce Code. Well, Dan, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again for hosting Commerce Code and for having me on today. Coming right up, the role of crypto when economic times are tough. Payments.com reported this week that Sub-Saharan Africa shows considerable adoption of cryptocurrency for retail transactions, while Europe and America have big transaction volumes of cryptocurrencies as investments. Crypto still isn't used much in retail. Africa might just lead the way in crypto at the cash register. 
Crypto research firm Chain Analysis reports that while Sub-Saharan Africa represents just 2% of global crypto activity, retail crypto transfers are higher than any other region globally. Africa is as awash in smartphones as the rest of the world. Refrigerators might be less common than Europe or Japan, but smartphones are everywhere, and they are arguably far more essential than in higher-income countries since the smartphone allowed Africans to skip over relatively more expensive ways of communicating, transmitting information, and doing business with each other, and go straight to many different forms of digital commerce. Phone-based payments have been around for a very long time in Africa, most notably with Kenya's M-Pesa, launched by mobile phone company Safaricom in 2007. Kenya, not surprisingly, has the highest rate of crypto retail activity among African countries, according to Chain Analysis. Particularly in mobile technology, countries that lead in one generation of technology sometimes drag the sunk costs of that technology around like an anchor for years afterwards. This can allow other countries that didn't participate in the first tech boom to leap ahead with something more agile later. In the 1950s, the USA was the global leader in nearly every technology. And in fairness, this was because so much of the rest of the world had been devastated by wars in the 1940s. At that time, Americans got good at making, and buying, and no doubt watching, televisions. But Americans wanted the sort of TVs that came wrapped in wood and became a major piece of furniture for the family. They were designed and made in the USA, and as a result, they were prohibitively expensive. The technology in use was really heavy and really big. Have you ever moved one of those old things? But that didn't matter, because Americans wanted big TVs. Why on earth would you want a small one? This opened an opportunity for Japanese companies to make TVs that the rest of the world might want to buy. More portable, less expensive. American TV makers never considered competing in that market. Why would you want to sell something for less than half the price when you could continue to roll out Humvee-sized TVs at premium prices to rich American families? The problem, of course, was that their Japanese competitors figured out how to make TVs that were better cheaper, more reliable, and once they had done it, it was easy to make them bigger. And that was the end of the American TV industry. It was killed by TVs from a developing country that were created because of the constraints and limitations of that country. Kenya's experience with M-Pesa is a good example, but it's not the only one. When China hosted its first Olympics in 2008, credit cards were not supported, so visitors had to use cash. By the time China hosted its second Olympics in 2022, Cards were still largely not supported because the country had largely leapfrogged over credit cards to digital forms of payment based on smartphones. Nowadays in China, over half of all e-commerce payments use digital wallets, and 20% are in-app purchases. Just 21% involve cards. In a way, this was made possible by the fact that the physical infrastructure for cards wasn't already in place by the time smartphones came along. Nobody was going to pay for telephone poles once mobile phones were invented. And nobody was, apparently, that excited about paying for card infrastructure once cards weren't entirely necessary. So, back to crypto at the cash register in sub-Saharan Africa. Europeans, Americans, Chinese, Japanese. They don't need to use crypto to buy things because it doesn't solve a problem. But retail crypto might solve meaningful problems in countries with weaker retail payments infrastructure. That can lead to those countries developing technologies that eventually lead the world because of innovations that were beneficial to them. 
before they became beneficial to everyone. Commerce Code is a weekly podcast bringing you conversations with executives who are leading the way in digital commerce. If you like Commerce Code, your company should join the Digital Commerce Alliance and become part of our mission of advancing trade for good through standard setting, industry networking, conferences, and best practices. Check out our website at www.digcomall.org. On behalf of DCA, have a great week.